Nitschke was a, um, a philosopher whose philosophies greatly influenced Hitler. And he was the guy who said this, and I want you to kind of think on this statement for just a moment. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? I want to say it again so you can think about it, all right? If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Now, I don't think many of you in this room would vocalize such a bold, arrogant statement. Uh, it's, uh, it's obviously filled with just immediate like conflict and confrontation in the statement itself, but it is a statement that speaks to the pride of men. And what I want you to think about this morning as we get started, and we're going to look at Daniel in just a moment, but I want to kind of set an idea in your mind, and that is in each one of us, there is a fear that we cannot overcome. It is the reality that you and I are not in control. We will do everything we can to pretend that we are. We will set up our lives as best we can to prop up the illusion that we are in control. But the reality is, you do not even control your very next breath. Not the less what you will do tomorrow. And see, that is, at its simplest form, the struggle of pride. We want control. We want to be the ones in control. We want our way. I'm an only child. I really want my way. I took my four-year-old to Disney this week. She is an only child. She really wants her way. It's not just only children. It's all of us. This is what pride is. It is to say that we want to be the one who is in control. I want to read you a verse that's going to stick up on the screen throughout most this morning, and I want you to just kind of let it sink in uh, over the next 20 minutes or so. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Pride is a hard thing to figure out. It's a hard thing to, to even see in ourselves. It's, it's so hard to see our own pride. Culturally, we like to quickly define pride. We think of pride as like arrogance. We think of just that, I'm better than you. We, we, but pride is so much more than that. And it's so hard to see pride in our own lives. We really can easily see it more in someone else's life. But it's so hard to see it in our own life. This morning as we go through um, the story and we're continuing to read and preach through the Bible, we find ourselves in the book of Daniel. Now Daniel's an interesting book. It, the first six chapters of Daniel are, uh, I mean, they're just filled. They're like Bible stories like you read with your kids. And then the next six chapters just go kind of crazy. I mean, you've got like beasts coming up out of oceans with all these different horns and a little horn pops out and eats all the other horns. And what do all the horns mean? And you got like some monsters got ribs hanging out of his mouth because he just went, I don't know. Anyway, a lot of crazy stuff. And so the back half of Daniel becomes very apocalyptic. That would be a good word for it. 
We're going to focus on the first half, and I want to make, I, I want to give a disclaimer. I'm not avoiding the second half. It's not, oh, that's just hard, so we're not going there. I'll even tell you kind of my view on some of that really quick. I think a lot of that is um, one of the most misinterpreted sections of Scripture. It, it, it's kind of us and our mysticism wanting to make so much more out of things than are really there, as if the Bible is somehow this coded book like a treasure map with secret codes and puzzles, and if you can figure it all out, then you get like the prize, which is this great message at the end. Like It's that complicated. I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's much more simple, and really those, the root of those latter chapters reinforces the themes of those first six. And in Daniel, that theme is pretty simple. That God is sovereign and he is in control of the nations, of the authorities of the world, of the government of the world, of the way our world works past, present, and will work into the future. And that one day God will establish his kingdom that will reign forever and will never cease. This, in short, is kind of the theme of Daniel. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first four chapters. And we're just going to walk through it and I'm just going to kind of tell the story. And then when we're done, at the end of chapter 4, I want to try to make sense of why verse 37 should be so significant to us. And we're going to talk a little bit about our pride. So that's the journey this morning. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 begins, And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Babylon is one of the world powers. They had conquered the known world. It can be argued that they are the greatest world power in the history of the world, that no one has controlled more than Babylon. They were amazing, and they did some amazing things, but they were also very ruthless. And Nebuchadnezzar has led Babylon now. They've, Israel has fallen, now Judah, the capital, Jerusalem, the temple, all this is here. And it will fall to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And as was their way, they will take the best of that culture, including the people, and bring them back to Babylon. And they will basically send them to like Babylon University. They will take the young men and the young women of noble families, the smartest, the brightest, the best looking, and they will take them back and they will indoctrinate them with the culture of Babylon. In other words, they will cherry pick the best of the world. And they will bring them into their culture and they will change their worldview. They will see things differently, behave differently for the good of Babylon. It's described in verse 3, it says, uh, The king commanded some to, to bring the people of Israel, both the royal family and of nobility, the youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and the competent to stand in the king's palace. There they will teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans, Babylonians, same. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, they're going to change their names and they're going to get Babylonian names. And so you recognize the other three, even if you don't recognize their name. You remember those Bible stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's them. So here they are with Daniel. They've been taken out of their culture. They've been taken captive. They've been brought back to Babylon. And they've been put in this program for three years in which they're going to be taught and educated to the ways and to the culture of Babylon. They will even change their diet. No more Levitical diet. Instead, you will eat as the king eats. And so the king's food isn't like he got a plate of food, and so he's got all these people sharing off his plate. It's not that. There would be a massive courtyard of the king's food. And the people who were of royal descent or who were close to the king or people of importance were allowed to eat from this room, from this food. This food, however, had been sacrificed to the idols of the Babylonians. That means it's against the Levitical law. That means for those who've been taken captive out of Judah, they're not supposed to eat it. The Bible says, don't eat food like that. Well, that creates a little bit of a dilemma. You, you haven't been here very long. No one really knows you. You are slaves from another culture, and they're going to treat you well. They're going to even let you eat the best of the food, and they're going to groom you to work alongside the king. Only one problem. You've got to break your law. It's just one way. It's just one simple mind trick of beginning to ease them in to forgetting their culture, forgetting what they had brought in with them, and re-establishing a different worldview. And so we pick up in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So it says he resolved. Some of you may have a translation. It may say, purposed in his heart. That's a great translation. I love that one. Purposed in his heart. Old Testament term heart is mind. Basically, it's he set his mind to. He made up his mind. Daniel purposed. Before he ever got there, I'm not going to do this. He made up his mind. He's going to remain faithful. Sometimes that's really hard work. I remember um, early on in my marriage, I began to realize that I just love my wife more than I love the Lord. And the way I practiced, the way I lived that out, and really just in kind of in my heart. I began to wrestle with that. And I remember in my meditation and in my prayer life, the way I began to try to make sense of that, as I began to think, what would happen if God took my wife? Tomorrow, she wasn't there. How would I live? How would I feel about that? How would it affect my walk with the Lord? And I remember trying over months to really meditate and purpose my mind, set my mind to where God was the source of my trust and my love, and I could trust him with anything, even my wife. I now have that even with my daughter, and not just so much with her life, but I recognize that my daughter is not my own. I don't parent my daughter because she's my hobby, or she's like my pet, or the thing that I just enjoy. The fact is, my daughter belongs to God. 
She belongs to him. And so in that, I have, to, I have to remind myself of that. I have to purpose my mind for that. I have to set myself up. I have to meditate that and anchor those things into my heart. And this is what Daniel's doing here. I'm not going to defile myself. We talked about giving this morning. Can I tell you, some of it is just purposing in your heart that this is what you're going to do regardless of your income, regardless of your setting, because it's what the Bible tells you to do. And it may not be the most cheerful and loving thing and exciting. Woohoo! They won. But man, I'm going to do it until my heart gets there. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't do this thing. Another thing I want you to see that's true of Daniel throughout, and this is a fun thing. You know, I think this way sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, man, if the Lord wants me to do that, he'll open the door. He'll just open the door and it'll become clear and I just know this is the way I should go. This doesn't happen to Daniel. Um, Daniel, it kicks down doors. He makes them up. There's not even a door there. He just says, this is where we're going to go. You you don't have any direction from Daniel. By the way, there's no precedent. It wasn't like Daniel could read back in the Old Testament and say, hey, this worked for so-and-so. I'm going to try this. When he says, we're not going to eat this, can can we try something else? There's no precedent that this is going to end well for Daniel. I want you to see that when Daniel makes this decision, he makes this decision with his life on the line. God hasn't gone before him, and God didn't tell him, hey, it's all going to be okay. It ends up working that way, but I want you to see that's not known to Daniel here. And so Daniel comes back, and he says in verse 12, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So this eunuch is afraid that if he lets Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys, go on this diet, that if they come back and they don't look healthy and good before the king, the the eunuch's going to get in trouble because he didn't follow orders. And so Daniel comes up with a plan. He says, let us try this for 10 days. We'll just eat salad and water, all right? We'll eat salad and water 10 days, and let's see how it goes. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food, the wine that uh, they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. So for the next three years, they're going to eat vegetables and water, things that they can eat according to the Levitical law. All right. I have to make a confession. Sometimes I think as a culture, we, we, we really just don't know the Bible, and I have these little reasons why I think that. The Daniel diet is one of those reasons where I just think we don't know the Bible very well. Have you guys ever heard of the Daniel diet? Okay, obviously, I don't know anything. Look at me. I don't know anything about diet or nutrition. This is known. It's understood. I get it. You can smile. We all know it's true. I do, however, understand that the basic premise of a diet is to lose weight. Daniel's diet is described as they were fatter in the flesh. Come on. Think for just a minute that you're going to say out to the call, hey, let's go on a diet. We'll call it the Daniel diet. In my mind, immediately goes, fatter of flesh. That's my kind of diet. 
It blows my mind that things like this can work. But anyway, it works. So they go on the Daniel diet. They don't lose weight. They, they gain weight. They get fatter. And as a result of this, verse 17, as these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel, it singles out Daniel, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, which will play out through the rest of this book. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, there was none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Three years, they graduate top of their class. All right? So that's how chapter one ends. We see. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, top of their class. But they're still in the class. They're still those slaves who are taken from Judah who are now in Babylon. We turn the page and chapter 2 begins. And Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And he wants to know what this dream means. But Nebuchadnezzar is smart. You don't rule the greatest power in the history of the world with not having a little bit of intelligence. And he understands that these people can just tell him anything. And so Nebuchadnezzar asked, um, what's my dream? And his magicians and all these people come back and say, well, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Well, they can just make up anything. Well, Nebuchadnezzar knows this. And he says, listen, here's how this is going to work. You're going to tell me the dream or I'm going to tear you limb from limb. All of you. Do you understand? And they said, we understand. Why don't you just tell us the dream and then we'll tell you. He's like, no, 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 you're not getting it. You're just buying time. Tell me. And they said, listen, this thing that the king asked, no one can do this. This is something that no one has ever asked. It says in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. By the way, if, if I had time, I'd just camp there and go all preacher on you. There was once something in our flesh that no man could ever do, and God himself took on flesh and did it for us. That'll preach. Anyway, I'll keep going. Verse 12 because of, the king, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He's going to kill all of them, the whole program. All this that's been building, all Babylon University, all these guys, all of them. We're going to kill them all. Verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel hears this because Daniel's being rallied up to be killed. And he says, hey, if you can get me a, a meeting with the king, um, maybe I can interpret this dream. Now, here's the interesting thing. At this point, Daniel does not know the dream. Again, this is called kicking down the door. 
um, king of the most powerful place. Yeah, get me a meeting with him. I'll interpret the dream. Psst, I don't really know the dream. Do you understand the dilemma of this? I'm just saying, their death's going to be bad, but I'm sure whatever Daniel gets, if he does not deliver, will be much worse. Now, I want you to pay attention to the three thens that follow. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he goes back and he says, Guys, listen, I've said I'm going to try to go interpret the stream. We don't know that. Uh, we need God's help. Let's start praying or we're going to die. Then, all right, verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. He prays, he seeks the Lord. The Lord gives him the vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Listen, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So, verse 26, the king calls Daniel and says, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And if you can imagine a Hollywood moment in this. So, you know, you got the awesome, like, you know, big, like, uh, just powerful soundtrack behind this moment. You have the king, the most powerful man in the world. All right, Daniel, can you interpret my dream? And I can imagine you kind of have Daniel standing there in front of the king, head down. And this is what Daniel says. No wise men, enchanters or magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And all of a sudden, Daniel's head rises up. He looks back to the king and he says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Isn't that amazing? Daniel could have just walked right in and said, Yeah, I got it. Daniel affirms the same message that the people had told him before. There is no man who can do what you ask. No man has such control. No man has such power. All things come from God. There is a God who reveals such mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in later days. Skip down to verse 30. Daniel says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than the living. It's for a bigger purpose than Daniel, and he sees that. And so in verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, after Daniel interprets the dream and goes forward, truly your God is God of gods. 
and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Verse 48, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the province uh, of Babylon and chief uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel uses this to promote his buddies as well. And again, now they are all promoted. This time, they are not in class. This time, they are prestigious citizens, if you will, of Babylon. They are recognized. They have been elevated. Turn the page, chapter 3. Some of you are going, this is not going to end. It's going to get there. Chapter 3, famous chapter in Daniel. This is the fiery furnace. So King Nebuchadnezzar has made an image of gold, verse 1. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather basically all the important people throughout all of Babylon and all of its providences. They're to come and they're to worship this image in a ceremony in which it's dedicated. Except there's a problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship, and to kneel before the statue. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar knows them, values them, and I think you can see that in what happens next. Verse 15, he's angry with them. He has the three brought to him. Now, I think immediately with almost anyone else, they're just already killed. But Nebuchadnezzar needs a second chance, right? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound, fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. We'll be okay. The difficult, I'll, I'll just forget your drama. We'll excuse it for a bad day. We'll be good. We'll move forward. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Remember this question. Who is the God that will deliver you? Let me say it a different way. Who or where does your help come from? That's your theme. Where does your help come from? Well, the three refuse, and it makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. He makes the furnace seven times hotter than normal. It becomes so hot that the men who throw the three into the furnace die. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting back and he's looking in the furnace. In verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three bound into the fire? They answered and said, king, it is true. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar takes the three out of the furnace and he promotes them again. And this time he makes it a law to speak anything against the God of the Hebrews. It's against the law now. I want you to imagine if you're getting Daniel's letter and you're in exile somewhere and you've lost your land. It seems like all this stuff is happening and it seems as if your God has forsaken you. And you're reading these first few chapters 
I want you to think how encouraging it would be to be reminded that God is in control. And so, chapter 4. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, the nations, the languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. He's writing this, verse 2, because it seems good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar will go on and he will tell the story of how he's had a dream. He's had another dream. In this dream, there is a massive tree in which basically all of the world finds shade under its limbs. But the tree will be cut down and be removed. Only thing that will remain is a stump. And the stump will be guarded by metal, protected. He wants to know what the dream means. He calls for Daniel. Daniel comes back and he interprets the dream. And he tells King Nebuchadnezzar that you are going to be cut down. You're going to lose everything. All this amazing privilege that you have as the king of the greatest nation on the earth will be lost. And instead, you will wander the fields. You will no longer be manicured and dressed as a king. You will look like a beast. You will eat grass off the ground. You will sleep with no roof over your head. You will smell, right? This is what's going to happen to you. But Then you will be restored. In verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? There are things in Babylon that to this day are regarded as, um, if you will, just great wonders of the world, especially of the ancient world. They did some amazing things. And he stands out and he looks and he says, look what all I have done and all I have accomplished. And immediately in that moment, Daniel's vision or interpretation of the vision comes true. It says uh, in verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men. It's exactly what happens. He loses everything including his mind. And as he wanders around as a beast, I want to pick up in verse 34. And at the end of the days, these seven periods of time that this would happen to Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. What did he do in this moment? I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is a completely different tune than what he said at the beginning of this mess. Beginning it was me, a worldview that is centered around him. He comes out of this and he has 
no option but to praise and give honor to the Lord. Look, this morning we've covered so much scripture. There are so many applications that the Holy Spirit could be working on you and revealing to you this morning. And ultimately, that's all his work. But I want to offer you one, and I want to talk to you in the just next few moments, and we're done, about pride. Pride isn't reasonable. Remember, his reason had left him. Pride isn't reasonable. It's foolishness. I think of Psalm 121, verse 1. Listen to the parallel. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. At some point you will realize you are not in control. It may take a great tragedy in your life and it may just be the moment of meditation, but you will recognize you are not in control. And in that moment you will have to lift up your eyes and determine where does your help come from? Who is in control? This is what Nebuchadnezzar is faced with. And it's why that verse that's been on this screen for the large part of the morning is so true because Nebuchadnezzar, who had it all, who had it all, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And listen, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Theologian said, pride is the greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. C.S. Lewis called pride the greatest of sins. I want to give you a few quick ways to look at pride. We'll be quick. First, you need to understand that pride is a self-centered worldview. It just puts you as the person who's in control. And it seeks to live that out. That's what pride is. It is a way of thinking in which you are at the center And it's built on illusions and lies. Let me give them to you really quick. First, there's an illusion of self-sufficiency. The lie that you can meet your own needs. Again, you can't even control your next breath. Not the less what you need for tomorrow. It is built on the illusion of self-limitation. This is the lie that you are so unique in your weaknesses. That you are so unique in what you can't do, that you are beyond God's sovereignty. This is referred to often as reverse pride. Well, God can't do anything with me. Well, what you're saying is self-centered. You're at the center of this thing that's so messed up that God can't do anything with you. There is an illusion of self-accomplishment. This is the lie that you can do or achieve or earn or conquer Succeed in isolation. That you, yourself, can succeed. We are so limited, we don't even know what success is without help. As someone in ministry, and the guys probably here on staff get tired of listening to me say it, but it's for me. I talk so much about Jonah and Jeremiah that it's ridiculous and contrast the two. And the reason I have to do this is because, just honestly, is pride? You know what? I want our church to be the biggest church. I want our church to be the coolest church. I want us to do everything right. And I, I want everybody to love everything about what we do. I just always, that, that's, I'm just wired to think that way. Can I tell you that's pride? It's not faithfulness. And the reason I have to talk so much about Jeremiah and Jonah is to remind myself 
that I want to be a Jeremiah and not a Jonah. Jonah wasn't very faithful. And he led one of the greatest revivals. Man, everybody repented, all this stuff's going on. Jeremiah was so faithful. No one really repented. No one thought much of him. They threw him in a cistern, wanted to kill him. But if your measurement of success is an audience of one, give me Jeremiah's account. I have to remind myself of that. I don't even understand success or accomplishment. There's the illusion of self-gratification, and that is the lie that you can find joy in yourself. That you can find joy in yourself. I want you to know that lasting joy, I'm not talking about the fleeting thing that makes you forget everything else. It's just an illusion. I'm talking about lasting joy depends on purpose and truth. And that can only come through God. Last one, the illusion of self-worship. The lie that you have value and worth in and of yourself. Listen, that you have value in and of yourself is a lie. Your value, your worth, is directly connected to your creator. Do you want to know what gives you value or worth? The fact that you are an image bearer of the creator. This is what gives you value. This is what gives you worth. And to forget that is to begin to worship something uniquely about you. That's pride. How do we see this and how do we fight this? And by the way, we never arrive at this. This is the constant fight of sanctification in our life. This is the constant fight to be more like Jesus. And how do we do that? First, you can begin just by admitting that you're prideful and that you can't defeat your pride on your own. You can't just try harder. That, I mean, we see how ironic that thought would be, right? You can't just try harder. Instead, you must seek your help, your power, your purpose, your joy, your worth. Listen, your life in Jesus. He's got to be the one that you run to. He is the one who will be your help. Pray. Pray. Pray that God will give you wisdom. To see your pride. Pray that God will give you the faith to see him more and more. Learn. The opposite of learning is pride, by the way. Learn. Study your Bible. And I don't just mean like your 15-minute devotion in the morning. I mean study the Bible. It is God's revelation of him making himself known to you. Study it. Learn who he is and who he's called you to be. Recognize that you don't just naturally know it. And recognize even smart people around you like your grandmother or, you know, Pastor Derek who's teaching you, they don't know everything. Learn from the Word of God. Repent and confess. If there's never been a time in your life where you have repented of your sin and placed saving faith in Jesus, that is the first step out of pride. As a believer, we must confess our sin and our pride ever before the Lord. It's not changing, listen, it's not changing our position in Christ. It's part of the sanctification that we're called to confess. In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of response that's going to include the Lord's Supper. 
Paul talking to believers, he said, some of you are getting sick because you're taking this ordinance of the church and you're doing so flippantly. You're doing so with sin in your life. You need to confess your sin and point your heart away from your pride and back to the Lord. Want to overcome pride? Repent and confess. And like any good shampoo, (laughs) repeat. Keep going through these things, right? Keep going through these things. Do them again and again. Pride is not something that you will arrive at and just say, man, I've got my pride in check. I'm going to ask you to take this moment. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. We're going to pray. And we're going to transition quickly into a time of response that is the Lord's Supper. It is a time of reflection. It is a time of confession. It is a time that we prepare our hearts now to take part in an ordinance given to the church. I pray that the word of God this morning will stick out in your mind, that through it, we would have the wisdom to see our pride, to see in us the desire to control what only God can control. And that with great humility, we would confess our pride, that we would confess our sin, and that we would come to him and worship him. That we would recognize that we have standing before God, not of any account of our own, that we have value and worth, that we have joy, that we have purpose, nothing of ourselves but through the sacrifice of his son on a cross who conquered death that we could not conquer, who offers us adoption into his family and eternity in the presence of God. Take this time. Repent. Confess. Prepare your hearts for a time to remember that we owe everything to Jesus. Would you pray?